So I want to be sure to mention to you, I know that we're doing this thing where we're alternating between the author's teaching, Kelly Minter, and myself. And so I just want to make sure that you all know that if you would like to have the DVD teaching, you know, to, to view it, just email Carol Weber at cweber at chapelstreet.com, I believe. She is happy to come early on Tuesday mornings to let you view any of the DVDs throughout the time. Say maybe you'll miss. Maybe it's the time when I've taught you want to hear Kelly's teaching. Um, I think she would just be flexible and happy to help. I spoke with you this morning, so feel free to do that. I, I should mention that Kelly does spend her teaching session on the last half of Chapter 6. And so I'm going in a completely different direction this morning. We're going to spend our time this morning in the last chapter, uh, last half of chapter five. But as we begin this morning, I've been thinking a lot lately about our memory verse that we had from 2 Corinthians 2.14 that talks about we are to be spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere. And I have a funny story to tell you. This gives you a little window into my world. So one day, I think I'd been cooking, which doesn't happen a ton around my house these days, but it was stinky. So I lit a candle in the kitchen to kind of, you know, I wanted a fresh new smell. <laughs> and the candle had been burning for a long time, right? And then I decided to move that candle from the kitchen to the little desk that's in my entryway. So people like, I don't know if I was expecting somebody to come to the house or what, but... So there it was. And in the meantime, I was doing laundry, and I had a quilt in the dryer that would not seem to dry. And I had the bright idea of hanging it over the top of my railing that's in my entryway. And you all are figuring out what happened. That quilt fell, and that very, very <laughs> drippy candle spilled everywhere all over my entryway. It was all over the front door and, and the side light windows, all over the rug, all over the walls. If you come to my house, you can still see it. I've tried to clean it up. But it just gives me, it gives you this picture, right, of this idea. Well, when other people bump into us, <laughs> what are what is spilling out onto them? I actually saw in a commentary some notes on this verse, and the, and the title of it was, How Do You Smell? <laughs> so, something to be thinking about, and I think it ties in with what, how Paul continues throughout this letter um, to the Corinthians. I think... Within the last few weeks, maybe it was last week, I gave you this outline. I just want you to, encur to encourage you to keep that in your notebook. Keep it handy. Whenever you're doing your study for the week, pull it out and see where we are in the big picture of this letter. Because I'm hoping, ladies, by the end of the time that we, we finish this study, that you are going to be able to say, you know what? This is how the letter of 2 Corinthians contributes uniquely to the whole of Scripture. This is how God is revealed to us in this letter. So keep going back and getting that big picture. So as we look this morning, we know that we, we saw in chapters 3 and 4, especially, this emphasis on the Spirit and how the Spirit brings life and newness. And that's going to continue. That's going to continue. 
we, we know this big picture of what was happening, the setting of the letter, that Paul is, is the spiritual father to this church. And he's trying to appeal to them, to reveal to them that his ministry is a true ministry of Christ and his gospel. And he is living out before them this life of following in the way of Christ in this path of humility and suffering. The Spirit has completely transformed Paul from this power-hungry and self-exalting man who went around persecuting Christians to a loving and lowly man who knows that he is weak. And he's pouring his heart out to the Corinthians, seeking to reconcile their relationship to him, pleading with them to be reconciled to God through Christ and to live lives that are set apart for him. I also want to mention that as we look at these scriptures today, leaders, these scriptures that we're looking at are in days two, two, and three in your week study. So you may want to spend more time in your discussion time on the other days, one, four, and five. Okay? So we begin by looking at 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 11. Feel free to open your Bibles with me. I'm going to read through verse 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we see Paul's motivations here, especially in verse 11 and verse 14. Motivations for his ministry are the fear of the Lord. He knows that there's a, that Jesus is the judge, that everyone will stand before at some point in the future. And Christ's love is controlling him, compelling him, causing him to continue in this ministry, seeking to persuade others to be reconciled to God through Christ. Now, back in this time, in each Greco-Roman city, the local philosopher was, would be honored through on their coins and local mon monuments, even through buildings. So they were the celebrities of the day. And just like we take pride in our local sports teams, they would do that. And there were kind of even rivalries between these, these philosophers. And Paul is once again differentiating himself from what was typical in the day. He's saying, I just want you to see my heart. I want you to see that I really am a true apostle of Christ. I'm not seeking popularity. I just want you to see my opponent, opponents a little more clearly. They are exalting themselves and they're taking pride in their out, the outward show of things. 
there, and I think there's a challenge, even really, for them to look at the hearts of his opponents. And then in verse 13, there's this phrase where it says, if we are out of our mind, Paul is actually responding, likely responding to an accusation that he's a little bit crazy. He's out of his mind. Um, and, and that's how we see it. Yet this word could also be used to describe an orator who fails to persuade because of his unpolished delivery. So Paul is saying, I care more about the heart and the message, not about this fancy show of oratory. This reminds me of a time years ago when I used to serve with the Moms Together ministry. I would interact with the speakers behind the scenes before they would go up on stage to present. And I'll never forget my interaction with a gal by the name of Charlene Bombick. She was really funny and a great storyteller, very dynamic personality on stage. But you know what her prayer was behind the scenes before she got up there? She said, Lord, get me out of the way. And I feel like she was, that's the same mentality that Paul has. Beautiful thing. In verses 14 and 15, we have this verse, um, the phrase where it says, the love of Christ con controls us. And we've concluded this. You know, he's, he's very sure about it. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we've seen that Paul, Paul's ministry is characterized by not exalting himself or living for himself, but living for Jesus, his Savior. And we've seen all throughout this letter his love for the Corinthians. He's living for others. I love in this when we that the word all is used repeatedly throughout this text. Christ died for all, and it gives this clear message that all are invited to come to him. Christ died to make atonement for humanity's sin and to free them from sin's power. And then what comes with it is that those that believe in Jesus as Savior are called to die to their old way of life. It is to be no more. It's now to be a new life that's lived for others and the love of of Christ controls them. So selfishness and self-promotion and pride are the old way of life that's left behind. Serving Christ and others is the new way of life. Paul is modeling living for Christ. He now suffers willingly for those that he once persecuted. Paul's life looks like Christ's life. And then we also see in verses 16 and 17 the new eyes that Paul has. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Paul now views everyone as a person that Christ died for. And before coming to Christ, he thought that Jesus 
was cursed because he had died on the cross. But then when he met the resurrected Christ on that road <laughs> to Damascus and was blinded, and things were never the same again. <laughs> and once his vision came back and the vision of his heart was completely changed. And then we see in verse 17, your memory verse for this week. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or it could be worded this way. There is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look, notice. The new has come. This is a powerful statement of Christ's transforming power. He does a work of metamorphosis. Just like he can take a caterpillar and turn it into a butterfly, he can take darkened hearts and bring them light and life and make them new. So Christ does all the work. We just get to be on the receiving end, trusting him for it, receiving the gift of relationship with God. So Christ does all the work and he needs to get all the credit. This term new creation was used in Judaism and it envisioned a time when Gentile oppression would end and Israel would be vindicated. So rabbis called converts to Judaism a new creature. But Paul is taking this term and putting it in, the, in the, a new way, right? Saying that a Christian who is converted is a new creation. And we also must note here that when someone is united to Christ through faith, there's a complete and irrevocable break from the past. Paul here is reminding the Corinthians who they are. They have been made new and are already being transformed into the image of Christ through the spirit of work in their hearts. This verse also echoes Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, there's that word again, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God alone is the one who can create and give life and make all things new. Now when Paul says this phrase, if anyone is in Christ, it's almost as if, as if he's implying, even such a one as me. Paul Barnett puts it this way, God who said, let there be light at creation, has shown his light into Paul's darkened heart, making him a new creation. So Paul speaks of himself, and yet, once again, this offer, it's an invitation to all, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, anyone who receives Christ by faith. If you don't remember anything that I talk about for the rest of the morning, I want you to remember this right now. So listen up. What I want you to see, and Kelly talked about it a little bit in our study, is that the cross of Christ is a dividing line in time. Before there was 
creation, the old creation that had was fallen. And through cross, the cross of Christ and his resurrection, everything is made new. New creation begins. So Paul is trying to say that because of what Christ has done on the cross, he sees everything and everyone in a radically new way. There was a time when Adam's sin wreaked havoc on all of creation, on every human being, right? It's born under the power of sin. And yet through Christ, that power is broken. And so, just how Adam's sin brought devastation to all of creation and every person, Christ-saving work pervades all of creation as well. Through Christ, God is trying to restore the shalom of Eden, where God and humans and all of creation are joined together in delight and flourishing. The old order is gone, Paul is saying. The new order has dawned. So those that trust in Christ are reconciled to God, they're set free from the power of sin and sealed with a guarantee by the Spirit. And the Spirit is taking those hearts of stone and turning them into hearts of flesh. It's a transforming work. Paul talks about it. It's being inwardly renewed day by day. This is the work of the Spirit within believers. And so then his followers have a whole new way of living they follow Jesus in this path of self-giving love and humility and service. And they can grow in obedience to God through the power of the Spirit. This is the work of sanctification, the work of the Spirit. It's work that only God can do, this work of making all things new. I've been trying to think of a good example that might illustrate this. I live in an old house, like, I don't know, 75 years old. And we're, we've been in the, pro, we've lived there for two years and we're, we're in the process of renovating it and it's long and slow. Right now I have a bathroom upstairs that's completely gutted. And it just, you know, transforming, renovating a house doesn't happen in 30 or 60 minutes like it does on a TV show, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's a long, slow process, and we have to have hire different experts, right? Different tradesmen to come in and do the work. I can't do that work on my own. I am not equipped. And so I relate that, that God is the renovator of my heart. He's the one that can do the work, changing me. Sometimes I stomp my feet a little bit, and I think, come on, let's do it more quickly. But this is God's work. We need to trust him to do it. And then if we move on here to look at verses 18, 19, and 21, we see God's <laughs> grace and righteousness bring reconciliation. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I'm skipping to verse 21. For our sake he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We looked at reconciliation this week, right? And it means the removal of enmity between two aggrieved parties. It's re- simply rest- restoration of a broken relationship. Now, back in the Greco-Roman world, it would be well known for ambassadors to represent a king or a leader and seeking to bring peace, right, or reconciliation between two communities or nations that were in conflict. And a king would send his ambassadors to speak on his behalf. And yet, isn't this interesting that Paul says here, all this is from God. God is the one who initiates and achieves reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. He was so grieved at the separation that sin caused between him and humanity. And God made the first move. He does all the work to turn sinners, his enemies, into his friends. He extends his hand. And then all of humanity has the opportunity to choose how to respond. Scott Hafen puts it this way. To be reconciled to God and Christ is an act of sovereign restoration and creative power that is as magnificent and miraculous as the creation of the world. So as I've been reading through this passage again and again and again, I'm beginning to see that Paul is speaking of God's reconciliation and Christ's work of new creation as one and the same. And in this day and age, when we see lots of heartbreaking things going on in our world, and they're broadcast to us 24-7, I would challenge you to be a great woman of faith and to say that we believe that God is still a God who works wonders, a God who has this beautiful heart to reconcile all people to himself. He's still in the business of pursuing every single person on this planet. And he is able to receive them and make them new because of what Christ has done. And there will be a day, there will be a day, hallelujah, when all this restoring work will be fully accomplished. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow. And then let's look at this divine transaction. God reconciling humanity to himself through Christ. This miraculous accounting of God. If we notice in verse 19, this phrase, not counting their sins against them. And then in verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God Jesus, the sinless one, bears the sins of the world and redeems those who trust in him. God would be completely right and just to make us pay the debt that we owe because of our sin. 
but he is not counting our sins against us. Against us, He's not like me. He's not bad at math. He allows his sinless son to bear our sin on the cross. And he takes all of our sins and he puts them into Jesus' account. And then he credits our account with the righteousness of Christ. This is the amazing divine transaction of justification. And then we must notice this phrase, that those who are in Christ become the righteousness of God. When we look at the cross, I think we talk a lot about God's love and God's grace and sometimes lose sight of God's righteousness at work through the cross. God's righteousness could be defined as both his character and his actions. It's how he relates to humanity. He's faithful to his creation and his covenant promises, and he graciously meets the needs of his people. He acts to redeem and restore humanity, humanity, and one day will judge the wicked and bless the righteous. The cross is his greatest work of righteousness. He comes to rightly judge sin and also to set people free from its oppression. The righteous provision of God at the cross is both mercy and power. Robert, Robert Yarbrough puts it this way, God's righteousness is not just conferring mercy on needy souls. It's the living, active, transformative force of God's inbreaking kingdom. So as Christians who, by God's grace, are declared righteous, we don't just live and, you know, just accept that position and do nothing about it. God's righteousness is at work in us, and we are invited to join in the building of God's kingdom, working to set things right in this world. We act righteously because God has made us righteous, and we live under the power of the righteousness of God. One of the gals that I met recently at a home that is for women who are receiving restorative care after being in... Um, experiencing sex trafficking. She had to go to court to testify against her trafficker. And of course, she was a bit terrified. And yet, it was so beautiful to see that she saw what it, she would even, even define as important people, people that have a lot of power. They're coming on my team and standing up for me, and they're going to be there that day. And I think, oh, that's the work of righteousness in this world. Beautiful. And then let's move on here to finish up. With God's gift, the ministry of reconciliation, we see this in verses 18 to 20 and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the reality here. As we see the word, a, a form of the word reconcile used five times in those three verses, verses 18 to 20. Those who are reconciled to God become reconcilers. They are given the message, the ministry, and the mission of reconciliation. In verse 20, 
says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In, in chapters six, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we also see Paul's pleas. He says, working together with him, then we appeal to you, we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, that word once again, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So as Christ's ambassador, God is making his appeal through Paul to the Corinthians. So he's speaking the very words of God to him, to them. And he pleads with them, be reconciled to God. This is the heart of his ministry. He's revealing the very heart of our reconciling God, isn't he? He longs for all people to be reconciled to God through trusting in Christ. And he's saying, if any of the Corinthians are still rejecting him as Christ's ambassador, then they are rejecting Christ and his gospel. So Paul is trying to give the Corinthians an urgent warning. Don't receive God's grace in vain. For some, maybe their acceptance of the gospel has been superficial. Maybe they haven't persevered in trusting Christ as Savior. Maybe they've failed to proclaim the gospel to others. But he says, today is the day. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Paul is identifying himself here with Isaiah, the great prophet who called Israel to repentance and perseverance in the light of the coming day of judgment and salvation. Paul makes it very, very clear. The opportunity for salvation is now. And I think and I long for all of us to embody that same heart, God's heart for reconciliation. And it doesn't just include proclaiming the message, but it's about opening our hearts. And it's about the way we go about our lives that make us effective ambassadors for Christ. I pray that we would see others like Paul did as every single person, someone who Christ died for and desperately needs a Savior. That we would be ones who love well in the midst of waiting for those we care about to come to Christ. That we would be faithful in prayer. That we would ask the Lord to show us how to be an ambassador maybe in a very specific relationship. I have a dear friend whose father died in the last, just a few weeks ago, before their relationship was reconciled. She's not sure if he came to Christ in his final moments. It's her prayer. Though her wounds were deep regarding this relationship, she had graciously prayed for her dad for decades. She so longed for the Lord to bring light to her dad's darkened heart. And I think, wow, she's being a reconciler. So as we go today, 
as Christ ambassadors, let's remember there's a, a ministry to be fulfilled, a message to be proclaimed, a Lord to be received. And these closing questions, do you live in your true identity as Christ's new creation? How are you living for Christ and for others? And how are you an ambassador for Christ? Let's pray. Our great God, we're just so grateful for the cross of Christ and that you are a God who pursues us and seeks us out and reconciles us to yourself through Jesus and what he's done for us. Thank you that you are a pursuing God, a reconciling God, and thank you that you are in the business of making all things new. That is our hope today. You know all the situations where that is our prayer. Lord, will you come in and do what only you can do? Restore relationships, bring people to Christ, and then, Lord, would you somehow work in and through us to shine with the light of Christ in our dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.